0: Every time I see La Traviata, I fall in love. Not with the man or the woman, but with the two of them together as a couple. There's something about the character of Violetta that just sweeps you off your feet and sends you soaring into the stratosphere. When she and Alfredo fall in love, you feel it too because the music takes you there. And when things go wrong between them... That also feels like it's happening to you. Verdi's La Traviata is one of those operas that just makes you cry, but when the cast comes out at the end for the curtain call, it's pure joy. Welcome to He Sang, She Sang from Classical New York, WQXR. I'm Marin Lazian.
1: And I'm Julian Fleischer, and today we are talking about arguably the most frequently performed opera in the world, Verdi's La Traviata.
0: With us in the studio today is Corey Ellison, a dramaturg from the Gleinborn Festival and a member of the Vocal Arts Faculty at Juilliard. Thank you for joining us, Corey.
2: Thanks. Glad to be here. Always happy to talk about Traviata.
0: So Julian said this is arguably the most performed opera in the world. Do you agree? Or why is it arguable? Well,
2: because those statistics do shift as, you know, from from year to year. But certainly it's right up there.
0: Well, we'll certainly talk a lot about why. But to start with, the title La Traviata translates to the fallen woman or the woman who strayed, which goes some of the way toward capturing... The story about a French courtesan, basically a sophisticated prostitute, who falls in love with a wealthy poet. She defies gender and social mores and is marginalized by the wealthy bourgeoisie that live around her and dies eventually of tuberculosis. Um, But one of Verdi's working titles for this opera was Amore e Morte, which means love and death. And maybe that takes us the rest of the way toward understanding... He stole that from Woody Allen. (laughs) Woody Allen, I think maybe it was the other way around. I don't know who came first. (laughs) I do. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, maybe that takes us the rest of the way. You know, the plot revolves around these two basic universal aspects of human existence, love and death. Corey, do you think that that's why La Traviata has been so phenomenally, enduringly popular? Well, I always
2: think about um, a line in the wonderful three-volume study by the late, great Julian Budden, um, English musicologist, who wrote this, this wonderful study on Verdi's operas. And in his chapter about Traviata, he talks about um, the plot of Traviata and the character of Violetta as being mythical, even though her character is based on an actual Person who did live, he says she's no less mythical because she embodies these universal qualities that people uh, respond to so strongly. It's a prototype, uh, you know, an artistic and literary prototype that goes back very, very far. Um, You mean the
1: hooker with a heart of gold? Yes, or the the tart with a heart. (laughs) And it goes
2: back as far as uh, there's apparently an ancient Sanskrit play that has roughly a similar plot. Um, And, of course, so many really iconic characters, Mary Magdalene. Sally Bowles, <laughs> Julia Roberts' character in Pretty Woman. It, it just, there's a continuum.
0: So what are those universal qualities that she has that makes well, her a prototype? Well,
2: first of all, there's the prototype of a woman with some sort of a checkered history sexually who all of a sudden falls in love, deep, true love with a man. And uh, often she is of a, a lower social class And usually the story goes that it doesn't end happily. She has to make some sort of a sacrifice, you know, in the course of the story. And this is something that uh, just people throughout the ages have responded so strongly to.
0: Yeah. I mean, do you think that Violetta sees herself as... A tart, or a prostitute, or any of any of the other slander that might have been thrown her way, or women like her.
2: No, actually, I don't. I, and this is something very interesting culturally: is that um, I, I think that Violetta doesn't at all regard herself as a prostitute, nor did anybody in her circle. She traveled uh, Marie Duplessis, uh, on whom the character is based traveled in very high circles in, in Belle Epoque Paris and she was prized particularly not only for her great beauty but also, uh, she had amazing literary background. I mean, she was incredibly well read. I mean, she was supposed to be an incredible conversationalist, very up on culture.
1: And yet somehow her reputation, because there's, there's a point at which, yeah. you know, your, your conversation skills will only get you so far if you are, well. in fact, a courtesan.
0: Right. It keeps her in the realm of outsiders. They were not marryable women. Right. And her capacity to care for herself financially, mm-hmm. which was also something that was verboten mm-hmm. uh, for a woman to do at mm-hmm. this time. She doesn't need a man to sustain herself financially. Well, that, she does. Well, I guess actually <laughs> it's true. Yeah. She doesn't she doesn't need a husband yes, that's to sustain quite different, herself right? financially. She does, I suppose, need yeah. lots of men. Mm-hmm. Um, she has but,
1: to sell her horses. Go off yes. and, and sell her. Well, she,
0: her.
2: she in Act Two, yes, yeah, she goes to sell her position. Possess- <laughs> she has horses.
1: Yeah, she has to sell all of her belongings to keep up. You know. Oh, her yes. Right. I, didn't,
0: I forgot that her belongings include included horses. horses.
1: Yeah. Right.
0: Wish, I wish am, I making, is that, no, am I making? No, no, you The other. The other Traviata. <laughs> no, I forgot about Violetta's horses. There should be a sequel <laughs> yeah. called Violetta's horses. But what
2: about the horses? <laughs> well, this comes on the heels of a, a Verdi's first period of operas, which were very, very political. But then, uh, after that, in like the eight, the late eighteen forties and early eighteen fifties, he became more, much more interested in, as you said, this these very personal stories about characters on the fringes of society. The slut-shaming part does not come from her own society, her own circles, but it comes from a provincial man, uh, Alfredo's father, Giorgio Germont, who comes in and asks her to make the sacrifice for the sake of this pure virginal daughter that he has, who will be rejected by her fiancé if she continues carrying on her relationship with Alfredo, Aha, uh-huh, so son. it's sort of a
1: city-country problem, too, like we have here in America. Exactly. This is a red state, blue state problem. Hmm.
2: Exactly. And that's one of the reasons why this story doesn't get old, because it's someone with a different set of values, a more... Coastal elites. Uh-huh. <laughs> (laughs) A more conservative set of values.
0: I'm wondering why would Violetta have been prepared to make that sacrifice for Alfredo's sister, this woman that she doesn't even know? Why is she prepared to give up her own hoped-for happiness and love with this man just because his father asked her to?
2: Well... You know, at the time, it was more than just a matter of her denying this young girl her love, but it was also an economic arrangement that if the sister of Alfreda wasn't allowed to make this advantageous marriage, she may have had to go to a convent or, you know, be in very dire straits. And also, I think that on some level... Germont brings her to recognize something of this in herself that she was someone who didn't have that option. The real Marie Duplessis was from a rural family, and her father pimped her out when she was very young. And also, Germont has worked her, has worn her down so badly that she is, is feeling very low self worth at that moment.
0: Right.
1: I think it's safe to say that part of the answer, anyway, of why this woman makes this this seemingly impossible choice is because musically she is put through it by this other man. Absolutely. And it's in the duet that the, the personality issues click into place. And that, I think, is probably why it's so successful, because it uses... It's an opera, you know, and it uses music to, to move yeah. its characters.
2: Yeah, this this duet is in eight little sections and you know, in each section we can trace through the harmonic journey, through the the differing texts and so on, and the differing tempi. You can trace Violetta's journey. Basically, Germain is kind of doing one thing. He's he's sort of driving and driving and driving his point home and Violetta is the one who's being worked on and she's changing she's fluid throughout those eight sections and she goes from very resolute to probably feeling by the end well this was never going to work out anyway because of who i am Mm. Right.
1: it's like a coerced confession
0: it yeah, it kind of is. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And Germain, in some ways, is a stand in for that society.
2: Absolutely. He is he's
0: he the one man representative of respectable society, the kind of men and men who needed and paid for women like Violetta, but also had the power to destroy their lives if they wanted to or needed to for their own Absolutely. benefit. Absolutely. Germain is a stand in for that society. He's a gentleman, a respectable man. He's exactly the kind of man who pays for the company of women like Violetta, but who wouldn't dream of welcoming her into the family. Let's meet him. I went up to the Metropolitan Opera to speak with baritone Thomas Hampson, who's been singing the role of Germain for 25 years. I wanted to know if even he, after all, all this time, still thinks that La Traviata is one of the greatest operas ever written.
3: Yes, I do think it's one of the greatest operas. And primarily because of the genius of Verdi and his his ultimate genius in our genre opera is that he writes in musical language the interior of the character's souls that are singing. He gives us musical language to sing that is inspired by text and certainly sets up a context that is very theatrical. But in fact... If we did nothing and just stood there and sang his music, you would understand completely and wholly the dilemma of any one of the people that he's portraying on stage. And and that goes for all of his major and mature operas. But I think Traviata holds a kind of special place with that. I think the first five bars of the piece, you pretty much are in the world of, of what you're going to be for three hours. And it's Violetta's terrible fate, uh, and yet this hope for love, this hope for life, really. So I'm a big fan, one of Verdi, and certainly of Traviata.
0: Well, speaking of Violetta and dilemmas, she certainly has a big one in this opera. And she's not alone. There are countless examples in the genre of women who are used and abused and manipulated and their options are so limited as to make suicide or even dying of tuberculosis seem better than what their uh, their other realities might <laughs> Walport, be. Walport. So it's easy in some ways to focus on her predicament and her sacrifice and to sympathize with her, which I think Verdi does as well. So I'm wondering about your character, about Germain and... How we feel about him, is it as simple as saying that he's this rich entitled jerk who's come in to get exactly what he wants out of this woman who has far less power than he does? Does he just come in to ruin the lives of these two well-meaning young lovers?
3: Well, to answer your question specifically, no, it's not enough just to call him a rich jerk. And I think that the operative word in opera, in my opinion, is dilemma and dilemma trumps plot any day of the week. I think we in fact have way too high expectations for opera plots and and it is a fun joke and and we can sit around dinner and and laugh about opera plots. But in fact when we go to the opera, I would like to encourage everyone to simply absorb the willing suspension of disbelief in in its utmost detail for plot and completely live within the ensembles, arias and music – which is exploring the dilemma of the characters and the psychologies of the various people interacting with themselves. And specifically to your question, another reason why Traviata is so great is because these three protagonists are so etched out so clearly by Verdi, caught in their fates, caught in their own individual dilemmas that – are timeless. They are human dilemmas. They will always be with us. Traviata. You could call an, an outsider. She has made consistent decisions for her life that are very necessary. Some of them simply out of the pleasurable side of life, and she has chosen those decisions very courageously against a society that doesn't believe in that. Then comes the bill, uh, and the bill is is Germon. The bill was going to be somebody or something that was going to come into her life that said, well, no, you don't get to choose how societies set up their morals and how how people decide around you how you're going to live. And this is where Verdi enters in personally because he resented deeply the societal pressures. He, he thought mass mentality was rather disgusting and he he thought that the, this sort of puritanistic mentality that, that was through the 19th century from his village, Buseto, where he lived to Paris or any other – or Milan was unreasonable to – one's right to find their love wherever that may be. Germain shows up representing that. And and I I think we have to give him a break. He's not a bad person. But his dilemma then becomes that he's enlightened enough to understand that he's representing something that he no longer can believe in. And whatever his experience is with Violetta, especially in the second act duet, he would never change his mind. His decision to approach Violetta is first and foremost practical; it's not moral. So you've got the you know the good sister and and perhaps the wayward son. You've got this whole family dynamic in there, which I find in this production uh, very exciting because I think it's very clear that Alfredo and Papa haven't gotten along for quite some time, yeah. and that probably Papa is not the most understanding, loving father of that time either. He was a you know spare the rod, spoil the child. Mentality and that would have been very typical of that time as well. So, I think in opera it's disrespectful not to drill down in all the implied relationships of these characters because that's where the real flesh and content of these of these operas are. It's a very complex and very beautiful, intricate world that is somehow always a mirror of who we are.
0: Beautifully said. Speaking of the father son relationship, watching Germain interact with Alfredo and with Violetta. It makes me wonder about the notion of what it means to be a good father and whether you think that he's really trying to be.
3: Well, I think his his protective sense is his believing to do the right thing. And I think he he confronts a world and a perspective of love through his interaction with Violeta that is I'm not sure if it's startling to him, but it awakens in him certainly a recognition that, that true love maybe should be able to transcend whatever societal limitations. Maybe, maybe, maybe we're supposed to be able to just do what we want to do and everybody should get on with it in the ideal world. I don't think he's just trying to control things. I think he's truly there trying to protect the next generation in his family from making fatal mistakes, both the son and the daughter. I would like to give him that generosity. He's he's not very good at it. His passive aggressive attitudes are, and his and his arrogance, especially to Violetta, but then the passive aggressive tone of the Di Provenza. You know, we all kind of shake our heads and say, yeah, yeah, right, right.
4: And then
3: he loses his temper, which clearly is something he's always done. And I mean, I think we see the family dynamic boom. And what does he do? He turns around and apologizes, and 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 in his apology, even even raises the specter of his of Alfredo's sister as the emissary, not him. You know, I'm only here because she brought me, and because she asked me to do this. Love transcends all. Oh, son, please. You know, oops, 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 oops. You know, right. it, it's a it's a wonderfully impotent family picture.
4: Yeah.
0: Well, I think generosity is an important word here, especially as we're talking about parenting and what it means to be a good father in this opera, but also beyond. I think any father, any mother probably has to beg their own children's generosity, beg generosity in the eyes of all of the onlookers, people who are keen to to judge parents and how they manage their own family dynamics. Are there moments in your life personally where you've needed to call on that generosity from the people that you've parented?
3: Oh, my goodness. You know, I I have four children made and assumed. I now have four grandchildren and hopefully many more. We'll leave the grand dogs out of the equation.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But we love them.
3: But we love them. And in some ways, they're easier. Uh, generosity is a, is a wonderful concept as you're putting it. Um, I was thinking about something else as you were describing the situation in, in some of the productions and working with some producers uh, that haven't liked uh, the cabaleta, you know, and they said, oh, but my God, you know, it just repeats the same thing. You don't say anything new. And, of course, they're being terribly word-bound. And, and they're right. It is a, it is a repetition uh, but the music is a is a different character, and it and and the, the 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 accumulation of emotion and frustration is obvious, and so forth and so on. And, and I remember saying to one of them, you know, do you have children? And <laughs> uh, and 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 he said, no, but I'm you know around children. And I said, well, you know, I don't know if you've ever tried to convince a nineteen to twenty one year old, especially son, of anything, <laughs> but you find yourself repeating yourself a lot. <laughs> For putting it nicely and gently, so you know, there's a lot to call on. There's, as a, as a performer, I think you do call on things in your own life, but probably the imagination is even is even richer. I, I imagine myself as Germain more than identifying with hmm. Germain. My relationship with my children and how I am as a person is significantly different than Germain. But I understand and I know this guy. I mean, I know him very well, this, this type of father and this type of man. And I can't tell you how many men and women, but especially men my age or older, came up and said, you know, quietly would grab my arm and say, oh, my God, my father was just like that. Oh, wow. And, and a couple came up and said, I wept like a child because I've been that father. You know, and I mean, I'm serious. People just – it was this epiphanal experience in the summer of 2005.
0: Yeah. The the word dilemma keeps coming up and you've said here that in some ways it's at the, the crux of what makes opera maybe mm. universal to all of us. Mm. I'm, I'm putting words in your mouth in no, way. No, no,
3: but... and I like them. <laughs> <laughs> Good, I'm
0: glad. Thank you. Um, and you've also called opera a laboratory of dilemmas and you've said that it tells a story of how people interact with themselves. You are a man who delves deep into not just the music but also the text and the poetry and I'm wondering if the music that you've sung over this long career if that has informed somehow or illuminated your own dilemmas personally if it's helped you to understand how to interact with yourself have you grown personally from what you've sung on stage
3: beyond description what a wonderful question! I haven't been asked that question so directly, and and maybe that's where my passion really comes from because I have experienced what it is that I believe so passionately in the arts. The fundamental message that I have as a as a performing artist is that is that the arts, the performing arts, especially the classical performing arts, opera, leader concerts, this sort of thing, in my opinion, is not a Fach or a hobby or an elective that one should get into. If you if you have to get into the arts, then someone has stolen them from you in the first place. I believe that everything we go to in concerts and opera, all the live performing arts, are a reinvigoration of our recognition of who we are as human beings and those around us at any particular epoch or any particular time. I think the arts are the evidence of human life, not the other way around. And And so... How could you not be informed or impressed or humbled in in a life that keeps on going, thank you very much, uh, both as a performing artist, just as a human being, by an ever-richening daily experience that I know more and feel more and and look for more and am more curious today than I was yesterday and day after tomorrow than today? And I, I think that's what the beauty of the arts is. And the arts are the embracing of the artifacts of any particular culture at any particular time to tell anyone listening and curious what it was like to be alive, to be a human being. It's the great river. The different wells are just fascinating, curious points. And opera, to me, in in its, in its business model pressure, which puts it in some kind of competition, to our free time in our lives, but it puts in a competition with cinema and television and hockey games and that sort of thing. I think we have to be very careful to say, yes, the time is perhaps in competition, but what the experience of, of the performing arts is, is not only amusement or distraction, but it will offer you that three-minute, five-minute, 30-minute time where you get to stop the clock in life. You get to stop and say, what's that about? What am I about? And in opera, the levels that you can do that are quite incredible.
0: There's a line in La Traviata when Germain looks at Violetta, who has expressed her love and her willingness to sacrifice for Alfredo, and he says... These are truly noble sentiments. For the first time, Germain actually sees her as a human being. He sees her intelligence, her heart, her generosity, and it adds to the power of the piece. But it doesn't stop him from manipulating her, and it's excruciating to watch. Corey Ellison, a dramaturg who works at both Glyndebourne and Juilliard, takes me and Julian Fleischer deeper into this incredible emotional arc. That duet
2: in act two is really the core of the opera. It's where the plot thickens and where the character of Violetta really begins to grow. And that's one of the the distinguishing factors, I think, of the character of Violetta and makes it such a a goal. It's like Hamlet or something. All the Sopranos want to play Violetta because it's a character who grows so much throughout the course of the opera. Yeah. And her voice
1: changes does it not as mm-hmm. the opera progresses yeah can we talk a little bit about that because I have some questions mm.
2: <laughs> <laughs> very much so that's one of the things that makes it really really difficult is that in the first act we meet this very frivolous party girl or ostensibly who sort of laughs off the idea of true love <laughs> Most of her singing is, it reflects that. It's very flighty and she sings a lot of coloratura, a lot of very, um, you know, ornamented music.
1: Okay, now I'm going to stop you again. I know you're going to get to this, but I'm going to ask the question because I know I'm not the only one out there. If we can talk a little bit about what the different kinds of soprano singing are. Uh There's coloratura, Uh which you just mentioned. Right. And then there's...
2: Well, from there, I'd say lyric soprano. Okay. And and we get that from her. We start to get that from her at the end of, of Act One where in, in A Force Louis where she's first contemplating she's trying on for size the idea of true love. And uh, that's where we first hear the lyricism. And that extends into the the second act. After the duet with Germain, she starts to grow into a more tragic figure and her music gets more dramatic. It requires a soprano with that kind of a range of vocalism that can encompass the light, frivolous coloratura music through the very... Beautiful, long lined lyrical music to the very sort of desperate, dark, dramatic music. The basso
1: profundo of the third (laughs) act.
0: Every soprano needs a a basso (laughs) profundo somewhere inside (laughs) her.
1: I take it, therefore, given what you've just said, that rare is the
2: soprano who can do it all. Is that right? Do- well, a lot of sopranos have attempted it, you know, with varying degrees of success. And and here's here's that brings us to the other thing about Violetta that makes it such a difficult role. Is it's not only the perfect vocalism that you're after, which of course you are, but you know. A, a, a Violetta has to be a personality that can carry the whole show, has to be a personality that we can so kathect and empathize with and uh, sympathize with.
1: I was hoping you would say cathact at some point.
2: <laughs> well, yeah, you can rely on me, <laughs> Julian.
1: <laughs> Wait a second. Uh, who kathected?
0: There's, there's no conversation <laughs> with Corey Ellison. <laughs> it doesn't include <laughs> But,
2: uh, you know, she has to be this compelling figure that we can all identify with. And I would say that the great traviatas of the world are few and far between, although a lot of people can sing it and can sing it well and do a nice job of it acting and so on. But, you know, the great Violettas are like the great Hamlets, again,
1: Yeah,
2: <laughs> in a lot of ways the the Standard repertory of opera has been based on this kind of victimized woman who's sort of idealized, but all, all the while victimized anyway.
1: Not just victimized, but punished for showing independence, punished for showing strength, punished for showing sexual liberation. That seems to be a pretty reliable storyline. That- but
2: also by showing these stories, they are showing that these injustices happen. They're bringing them to the fore and Verdi is not asking us to condemn Violetta. He's asking us to have mercy on people like her, I feel. It's sort of like, you know, a social issue kind of a play or opera. Now, I don't think that's what Dumas had in mind when he wrote the source material. But I do think that that was very much in Verdi's mind, as much as these operas like Rigoletto and Luisa Miller of his middle period and Traviata were you know, were very personal to him. At the same time, I feel he was making a social statement with them that these marginalized characters should be treated with a lot more compassion.
0: Right. So he went from making grand political statements in his earlier operas to making some grand social statements in these middle operas. One really quick side note about the Dumas that we're talking about, who wrote the source material for this, it's not the Dumas that we know best, mm-hmm. who wrote The Three Musketeers and The Count of Monte Cristo, but his son, mm-hmm. um, who apparently was a, a novelist and a playwright as well, but just an, yeah. a, an FYI. So we haven't talked that much about Alfredo, and I don't know if that's because the character of Violetta just overshadows in some ways every every she other does. character on stage.
2: It's all her. It's, it's really the conflict is between her and, and Giorgio Germont, the right. father, and... Alfredo is a tough character to – to yeah, because essentially he's very reactive and he doesn't – like many of the male characters in these 19th century operas who all of a sudden turn against a woman because they, f- they believe they were betrayed by her. He doesn't probe too deeply to find out what might really have happened. So he's a little difficult. And so, of course – the scene that he makes at, at Flora's party at the end of Act Three is really very ugly. He, he, th- he throws, throws money, money at her.
0: Right. On her feet. Right. Mm. Yeah. And
2: publicly. He publicly, and, and says. Her and... Yes, Damn. and says very that is terrible. Cold. Very terrible things about her. Yeah.
0: In, in front of everybody. Yep. He does have some pretty good music, though. Oh, yeah. We should say. One very recognizable tune is the Brindisi, the drinking song. Oh. Uh-huh. A fairly common theme uh, in opera, and even in Verdi opera, there's a drinking song in uh, Macbeth and Otello, but this one's maybe the most recognizable. <laughs>
4: Olivo, nei dolci fremiti che suscita l'amore, poiché quell'occhio alla core onipotente va.
0: also has the incredible undi felice.
2: Now that's an incredible duet because that in, in act one when he starts out he has this incredibly romantic lyrical music talking about the day that he first saw her and fell in love immediately. And it's the theme that comes back, musical theme that comes back throughout the opera. But Violetta responds to him, not in the normal way that a bel canto duet would work, where the second character comes in and sings different words to the same music. But Violetta comes in and sings this very florid, frivolous little line, sort of laughing him off, saying oh, no, you know, you're barking up the wrong tree. I'm not, if you're interested in romance and true love, I'm not the girl for you. But notice that by the end of the duet, She's singing his music. They're in thirds. They are back in that harmonious love duet kind of a place.
0: Yep. Oh. And and his music continues to sort of haunt her. Yes. As she she's really trying to to steel herself against this crazy love thing.
2: she's reading the letter in the beginning of the last act that music is in the violins underneath her, her recitation of the letter right
1: so my question would be since we've spent so much time talking about the story the the source material and you know the the, the socio-economic uh implications of it what about the music is did this represent a big leap for Verdi musically as well as dramaturgically is this his best musical effort and is that part of why it's so beloved?
2: Well, it's certainly one of his greatest operas and uh musically and it certainly uh is packed with hummable, memorable tunes and, and some of Verdi's greatest hits, if you will. But I think it's it's more than the sum of its parts. It You know, musically, he was getting into his first really, really major period, you know, um, his mature writing with these domestic operas like the Rigoletto and the Luisa Miller. But I think that, I mean, certainly uh, I would say in many ways rigoletto is equal to traviata as a musico dramatic structure and and filled with beautiful tunes but again i think there's something that is so compelling and moving to most people about traviata that it's that, that magical combination between absolutely brilliant music that's wedded so incredibly aptly to the story and the characters and this just, you know, really elemental story you know that no one can resist yeah. that makes it as great as he is he would go on later he's had many this was his 18th of 28 operas good grief yeah and <laughs> but he would go on this was 1853 and his last opera otello was 1893 so he had lots to go and he grew a lot in sophistication and his use of the orchestra and his sort of getting more flexible with the forms and so on. But there's no doubt that this is really great music, really great composition, really great drama. And it just, he developed from there. He evolved from there with the times that he was living in, I would say. Hmm.
0: It's time for our YouTube Picks, where we share some of the performances that we really love with you. Corey, what did you bring today?
2: Well, I brought one of um, many recordings of, of Collis singing the Act Two duet between Violetta and Germain. And this is from her studio recording. The Germain is Hugo Savarese. And it's on Cetra, and it's the Rai, the uh, Italian Radio Symphony Orchestra under Gabriella Santini. When we were asked, when you asked me about you know a particular clip, I thought lots and lots about it because I know lots of recordings of Traviata. But in the end, I had to come back to Callas, and it seems almost like a cop out, like an easy answer. But the fact is, is that she embodies the soul of this character in a way that uh, I have never seen elsewhere, although I've heard many wonderful Violettas. She seems born for this part. Yes, she's born for for this part. She embodies this mythical character. the, the, the She distills the suffering. This is a woman who understands what it is to suffer for love and to grieve and to have a great loss, and it's sort of as if all of those things are somehow capsulized in the sound of her voice. She's able to make sounds that are heart-rending, and that's why I really felt like I had to come back to Collis. And Collis has many recordings, actually, of Traviata, but there was one in particular in the, the duet in the second act that, that I chose because I thought this is Violetta's soul laid bare. Yep. This one for me distills that incredible poignance and grief. It's in her voice in a way that is more, for me, penetrating than than the others.
0: Great. Can't wait to hear it. Julian.
1: Well, Maren, you know me. I don't Mm -hmm. like to bring anything (laughs) that really uh, is germane to this. But, you know, I'm taken by by Violetta's um, declaration that freedom matters most of all to her. And that immediately um, made me think of my single favorite singer-songwriter of all time. Anybody who knows me knows that I'm religiously devoted to Joni Mitchell. Ah. and. (laughs) <laughs> she This is a theme that runs throughout her entire career, and she 's got some twenty five major records under her belt and The theme of freedom and as it as it is opposed specifically to love comes up constantly but she 's singing it from her own perspective you know she 's not having these words written for her it comes f- from her, and two songs i 'd like to put on uh, on the site are um "Help me," of course." which uh, I was listening to almost uh, unconsciously presaging this this chat last week. uh, And it has the great line. We love our loving, but not like we love our freedom, (laughs) which ends every chorus of that remarkable song from Court and Spark. And then there's another earlier song called Cactus Tree uh, from Ladies of the Canyon, where she she's singing in the third person. There's a, a lady in the city, and she thinks she loves them all. And it's a series of men who you know are pursuing this, this woman who's obviously irresistible for all of the right reasons. She's brilliant and talented and mysterious and what have you. But every chorus ends with her saying, well, she's so busy being free. And uh, so I would like to put up on, on the, the show page the live version of Cactus Tree from Miles of Isles, if only because it's just so wonderful to hear her, what, what Joni Mitchell can do live. It's pristine and fabulous.
0: Based on your vigorous, enthusiastic (laughs) nodding, Corey, I get the sense you approve of Joni Mitchell. I do.
2: I do. And, you know, probably not many people I know would associate me with Joni Mitchell, (laughs) (laughs) but she was very formative to me and uh, someone I still listen to and I love her her music-making very, very much.
0: Well, we know that you contain multitudes. <laughs> Funny, I was actually singing Joni Mitchell to myself on my walk to the subway this morning, so there's obviously something in the air. Well, I've got a recording of the great Act One duet, "Undi Felice Eteria, which translates to One Day Happy and Eternal, in which Alfredo is singing about the day that he first saw Violetta and fell in love with her. And he, he says that love is the pulse of the whole universe, that it's this mysterious and tortuous and delightful thing. So basically, he, he's he got love covered. This is a video of the Willie Decker production. Um, it's from the Salzburg Festival in 2005. And it stars Anna Trebko as Violetta and Rolando Viason as Alfredo. And I just love these two as a pair. Viazon has this unaffected quality to his performance, to all of his performances, that makes him so believable to me. And the chemistry between these two is just palpable. There's a moment when they're holding each other and spinning slowly around, and you just so badly want him to kiss the girl. Uh, You can feel how powerfully drawn they are to each other, and I love it. You can check out these videos at the He Sang, She Sang show page at wqxr.org.
1: And while you're there, please leave us a comment and let us know what you thought of the show. We really do love to hear from our listeners. It helps us build a better show week after week.
0: Yes, it does. And if you like what you heard, please subscribe to the podcast in iTunes or wherever you get your podcast magic.
1: Our guest today, once again, was the delightful dramaturg and teacher and all-around polymorphously perverse... (laughs) Corey Ellison, thank you for joining <laughs> us today, Corey. Oh,
2: thank you for inviting me, and in, especially that, that wonderful
1: <laughs> description. So, <laughs> I don't know, I just don't wanna I don't wanna peg you in, in too small a, a hole. You should I appreciate a lot that. of things you do.
0: Uh, we also want to thank Noelle Morris, our wonderful new producer, for Yay. her work on the show. He sang she sang is a production of Classical New York WQXR. I'm Marin Lazian.
1: And I'm Julian Fleischer. Thank you so much for listening.